So I'd been working for a really big corporation, something like 55,000 employees at the time, and I was interviewing for a Java development position. When I went to go interview for, for this company, for you know, my first sort of real job at a big company, um, I expected there to be a really structured process and for them to be really, really well organized. And it turns out, um, like most companies in the world, especially at that time, that was not the case. And so I went in and I chatted with four different engineers, all you know, super smart people, but they all asked me the same question. And since I got asked that question four times in a row, even if I hadn't known the answer, I would have known it for the other three. My name is Mike Buford. I'm the CTO of Greenhouse. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Mike Buford built the solutions that optimize the hiring process of thousands of companies. All this and more on Code Story. Mike Buford has no hobbies anymore, and for good reason. He has two six-month-old daughters and a three-year-old toddler, so it's an exciting and very busy time for his family. He used to play guitar and enjoyed cooking, but now he exclusively focuses on family and work. His family loves to go to the park and take walks around the neighborhood. Along with that, they sing songs, read stories, do art projects, and with the three-year-old, Mike does dramatic play. Recently, his daughter was Belle from Beauty and the Beast and promptly decided that Mike was guest on. He's not sure if that means she thinks he's arrogant or the strongest man she knows. When Mike interviewed at a large company, he expected that there would be some sort of structured process and for it to be organized. He found out it wasn't. He chatted with multiple people who all asked him the same technical questions. When approached to join a team and build something to solve these problems around structured interviewing, it took him no time at all to figure out he could build something better. This is the creation story of Greenhouse. Greenhouse makes hiring software. And it was founded in 2012 by Dan Chait and John Strauss. And then I had the, the lucky opportunity to be the first developer. And so I got to build the initial version of the software. When we look at this sort of origin story of Greenhouse, we look at the problems that existed in the applicant tracking system space. And so this is the bucket that systems like Greenhouse were put in when we first came out. So traditionally, you'd go and apply for a job on somebody's website, and that application uh, lands in one of these systems. Somebody goes in and they go find your profile, they look at it, and they decide you should be interviewed or you shouldn't be interviewed. So it was kind of like an online filing cabinet, and that's how companies treated applicant tracking software for a really long time. You'd have to fill out a huge number of forms. It was not a great candidate experience for most companies. And the biggest problem was that companies weren't doing a great job of assessing whether the candidates coming through their process actually had the skills necessary in order to do the job. So occasionally, of course, you would have teams that were good at skills assessment, but more often than not, people were running unstructured processes. So they would just send somebody in, they maybe got a copy of your resume beforehand, you'd sit in, to, sit in a you know, real life room with that person, ask a bunch of questions, whatever came to mind, maybe it was a gotcha question, um, maybe it was what they were interested in, and see you know, whether you like that person, whether they're someone that you would want to work with. 
That ended up being sort of the dominant storyline of how hiring happened. It was very much based on this sort of interpersonal interaction that was quite ad hoc and very low on substance. The solution to this problem is something that's been studied in academia for a really long time um, and uh, has been validated to be effective, which is called structured interviewing. And it's sort of as simple as figuring out what it is that's most important for somebody to actually succeed in the job you're hiring for. So maybe if they're a software engineer, they need to be good at JavaScript and they need to be a good collaborator. And then you figure out, based on those things that you said are important for the person to have in order to do the job well, you ask questions or run assessments that test whether they have those things. So we brought that to market as part of the applicant tracking system in 2012 and have since expanded our business to other types of software as well. Um, DE&I, focusing on CRM and, and sort of sourcing automation, onboarding software. So we are now a hiring software company, um, but we were founded uh, with the idea that we could take structured interviewing and bring it into the applicant tracking system. So I've been working for a really big corporation something like 55,000 employees at the time. And I was interviewing for a Java development position. And before that, I'd always worked as sort of an entrepreneur of some sort, running a consulting company or building product companies. When I went to go interview for, for this company, for you know, my first sort of real job at a big company, um, I expected there to be a really structured process and for them to be really, really well organized. And it turns out, um, like most companies in the world, especially at that time, that was not the case. And so I went in and I chatted with four different engineers, all you know, super smart people, but they all asked me the same question. It was a Java programming question. They said, what's the difference between string buffer and string builder? Um, which is a very specific library specific question about uh, you know, Java programming. And since I got asked that question four times in a row, even if I hadn't known the answer for the first one, which I luckily did, um, I would have known it for the other three. Because I could have just asked the interviewer, well, what, what is the answer, even if I got it wrong or said I didn't know? Um, and I would have passed the other three interviews. And so one of the things they were doing wrong, I might argue, is that they weren't trying to assess different things about my skill set. Said they honed in on you know, this, this one question because it had just become part of the sort of folklore about how we assess people who come and join our team and whatever we're doing seems to be working. That sort of mythology around what works in hiring was pretty pervasive in companies. And so, you know, flash forward a couple of years and I'd become a manager and was you know, running, uh, running a team and trying to make hires. Um, and my experience as a hiring manager was largely that I opened up a role and then I just received resumes in my inbox and I didn't really know how they got filtered out or who did it or who got passed over. So when I was finally introduced to Dan Chait, uh, who's one of the co-founders of Greenhouse, and he told me a little bit about what he was working on, and we met with him for coffee one day, I realized, like, this is definitely the right way. This is the way that we should be doing it. We should be thoughtful um, you know, when we conduct interviewing. Um, it is one of the most impactful things in somebody's life to switch jobs, to go from one company to another. And a company's success is also impacted more by who you hire than just about anything else. You know, all of those sort of brilliant strategic ideas, all of the good execution, all of that really comes from people much more than process. You could have an amazing process, have the wrong people, and the whole thing would fail. And so it was critically important for companies to get right. And so I looked at, you know, competitive landscape and I was like, oh, this stuff is not so great. Do I think I could build something better? It took about 20 milliseconds for my brain to say, yes, absolutely, you can build something better. And so I jumped ship and uh, joined these, uh, these guys, Dan Chait and, and John Strauss, and building Greenhouse. 
Tell me about the MVP, so that first product you built. What sort of tools did you use to bring it to life, and how long did it take you to build? So the very first version of Greenhouse took about 10 months to build. Did not work particularly well, I, I will admit. Thankfully, we had customers who knew that we were really early and still had to, to work a bunch of things out. Uh, now we're 10 years in and you know, everything is super reliable and works really well. But if we flash back to that time frame, we were building features and cutting corners all over the place. So you know, you'd be able to create a custom field, but you wouldn't be able to delete it. <laughs> you know, we, wouldn't, we didn't have time to get to the delete button. We'd build a first draft of a feature and, and push it out there. There were some interesting things like customer number eight that we got. So, you know, we, we started getting a little bit of traction. You know, still the very first version of this product um, was the first bigger company that we had dealt with. And they had something like 200 jobs open. Turns out, two, even 200 things wouldn't really load in the browser. They would go to our homepage and the whole thing would crash. And so we were dealing with this sort of thing live, looking at the error reports and trying to figure out, uh, you know, what do we need to do in order to get this thing to actually work for this new customer? If it's not going to work for them, the business itself might fail. And that feeling is kind of pervasive in the early days of the startup. If we don't get this thing working, like we're all going to die, or at least our company is going to die. And so we you know, added things like pagination and you know, searchable, lazy loaded drop downs and things like that. And that made it work. And so we were able to keep the customer and keep going. But, you know, the very first version of the software was really not very good. Um, it required a huge amount of work in order to set up an interview plan. Um, it didn't save itself. You know, so when you, you, you couldn't go back and, and do it, you had to really sit down and say, OK, I've got my coffee. I've got four hours. Um, I'm going to build this plan for how I'm going to interview for this job. You know, it wasn't a great user experience. That said, it was actually organic growth that drove us to 200 customers. We didn't have to do any marketing or any sales, really, in order to get our first couple hundred customers knocking on our door. And the reason was, this was sort of a known set of best practices. Um, it was not a secret that structured interviewing existed. This is something that had been studied and written about in, in you know, the world for a really long time. And so when we showed that we had turned this abstract idea that recruiters were trying to get hiring managers to do um, with mixed results and turned it into software that they could roll out across their company and all of a sudden everybody across the entire company would be performing a structured interview process that would sort of decrease bias and increase signal on, on you know, whether somebody would be a good hire. That was game changing for these companies. And so when we started talking to the, the talent partners at venture capital firms, um, and we just kind of showed them what we had built, they were like, I've got to get all of my portfolio companies on the line and get them to start using your software. That is interesting. So the VCs jumped on and they said, okay, we're going to immediately send you to all of our portfolio companies. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Very cool. Okay, so sticking on the MVP for a little bit longer, um, with any MVP, right? You gotta you gotta make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? And you know, you, you had talked about adding pagination later, and you know, not being able to save in the beginning. Um, tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to work through, how you made them, and how you coped with those decisions. You have to figure out which corners to cut, um, depending on your your runway and how much pressure there is in the market for you to to get out there. For us, we raised a relatively small round. I think it was maybe $700,000 or so, you know, people were drawing salaries and you know, that, was, that was sort of the biz biggest expense, but you could see that our runway was gonna run out um, and we had to start putting up results in order to get to the next stage of the VC process and raise some more money to be able to continue growth. 
there's a huge rush to get things out the door. And the ATS is this really big, complex type of software. There's hundreds of features. And so we we're literally generating new features every day or two. You know, we didn't even have a couple of weeks to build a feature. We had a couple of days to build a feature. And so we had to make, uh, make, make concessions along the way in order to get through all of that work. There was one really sort of critical moment, which I, some part of me is embarrassed to, to talk about it. And another part of me is like, it was absolutely the right decision. And there's really no other way we could have um, gotten to where, where we got um, without having made this decision. And that was in the beginning, you know, I'm there with one other developer who, who joined about three weeks later and we both knew how to write good code. And so we came in um, doing everything uh, with TDD, you know, we were writing tests over everything. We had continuous integration, you know, set up from, from the beginning. We had hundreds of tests, you know, just a couple of, of months into, uh, into the process. And we realized that we were in such a, a sort of constant churning of, of the product. We were changing things so frequently that all of the scaffolding you put around it to, to sort of you know, hold it up around you know, with, with test code was really weighing us down because we were spending something like 30 or 40 percent of our time just refactoring tests and not actually doing new feature development. So we changed our mindset from we're building some piece of software that um, you know millions of people are going to use every day and it needs to be stable to the mindset we're building a prototype and if we don't build a prototype that gets positive customer feedback the company is dead and with that change in mindset we decided to cut a number of corners but probably the biggest one uh, the biggest time saver was that we decided to start writing code cowboy style and stop um, writing tests. Um, now I had in the back of my mind, if there is any chance of this thing working long-term, we absolutely need to get to great test coverage over this thing and, and you know, it, it needs to um, you know, be done the right way. But I made the concession that we didn't need to do that until we, until we started getting some customers. And I talked about it with the founders and said, we need to resource this and make sure that we, we put in test coverage um, you know, at the right moment. They agreed, we made that trade-off at the beginning. It allowed us to move much, much faster just to be building the features and not be worried about test coverage. We validated that the prototype was a thing that people would actually want, that it might be a real company, and we fixed all of that stuff. And so um, now if you look at our test uh, test coverage, it's you know, super high, some, somewhere in the you know, uh, high 80s, low 90s, and, uh, and we're at like 70,000 um, or 80,000 uh, automated tests over our system. Um, so I think that was a good trade-off to have made in the early days in order to make progress quickly. So you've got the MVP. Your cowboy coding, you made the you made the trade-offs. How did you progress the product from there? And how did you go about progressing it? And I'm I'm curious how you built your roadmap and figured out, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. I mean, in the very early days, I think there are a few different things. One is the competitive pressure you get as soon as you start maturing to the point where you're compared against something else. And that comes from a couple of different places. One, if you have a key innovation that is attracting a bunch of market attention, there's going to be fast followers and fast followers that may already have a more robust platform to be able to build on. Um, so one lens on, I wouldn't say it was necessarily the most important thing, was we needed to get to parity with a bunch of our other competitors and not be missing some huge chunk of the system that was really necessary in order for our recruiters and for the rest of the company to be able to get their job done. Another one was uh, really iterating on the core innovation. So we were the first ones to market saying, hey, let's do this you know, structured interviewing thing and make it part of how um, a company that adopts greenhouse hires. And that required a lot more partnership with customers and understanding how are you using it, trying to define some philosophy around how you should be using it. 
think that dialogue ended up um, giving us a lot of feedback about how to get that to product market fit um, and make it something that you, know, you could save along the way and um, you know, define which scorecard attributes are most important for somebody to focus on for a given interview and attach more structured questions and attach assessments and all of these other things. I think a lot of that was customer feedback driven. And I think we were in that mode for a few years. There were certainly you know, new innovations that we layered in. We had lots and lots of opinions about how to do a lot of the things that other people were doing. And, and we wanted to do some of those things in, in different ways as we went. Um, but a lot of it was focused on the customer. And then you get a little bit of space once you get some market traction to then start making decisions. Do we you know, really push up market? Do we add other innovations into the product? Um, and some of that, even though you, know, you still get uh, a lot of feedback from the market on whether these things are good ideas, you start to get a little bit more creative freedom in pushing some of those things back into the product when you know you have an established business that you're going to be able to continue growing with what you have. We'll switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? That's a good question. And uh, I think you know, the, the theoretical right answer is I used Greenhouse in order to you know, define <laughs> you know, just, just the right structured interviewing process to assess all these people. But I think the reality of most startups and, and the reality of Greenhouse was I mostly recruited people that I had worked with in the past um, or knew from uh, the New York tech ecosystem. I took the best couple of engineers that I knew from uh, when I worked at you know, that, that sort of larger company and talked to them about what I was doing and they expressed interest and, and wanted to join. The second engineer after after that came from there. And then, you know, it was other folks in my network largely. You know, someone I went to grad school with, someone I'd met at a friend's housewarming party. And I got up to something like eight folks on, on the team and only had maybe one or two that I'd recruited from the outside in some way or another. Once you get past that point, you're kind of running out of people who you know, want to jump from their company and join your you know, little company with you know, no benefits or, or uh, you know, relatively few benefits and you know, a tiny startup for a lower salary. Uh, and you have to start recruiting more broadly. So the, the game really changes when you start expanding out. Um, but in the early days, a lot of it was my, my friend network and I'd worked with them in the past and had experience of their work. So let's flip to scalability then. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grew? We were fighting as we grew. And, and you know, I, I honestly think that is almost always the right solution. There are scalability things that are free and there are scalability things that you know have a significant cost. And most of them cost something um, if you try to build it sort of scalable from day one. That might be a little bit different nowadays um, where you have more of these sort of burstable infinite resources. But in 2012, you were still kind of dealing with machines and virtual machines and had to be careful about what you provisioned and how you provisioned it. So the first big batch of problems we ran into were kind of, kind of like... You know, funny problems to run into, um, you know, on some level, funny in retrospect. So we got as our eighth customer, a 1000 person company. So that's not great uh, <laughs> if you're uh, if, if you don't even have delete buttons. Um, so it was, it was good in that we got our first like real, you know, real contract and we actually still have this customer. Um, so they, they stayed with us through all this time, but you know, the product basically didn't work. You know, they, they, I wrote a custom data migration script to move all their data from their old system to a new one, um, you know, to, to the new one. And uh, as soon as the data landed, you can load just about any page in the app. 
we built a job dashboard where you could see the list of jobs. Turns out, if you have more than you know a thousand jobs open at, at some time, the, the DOM can't even handle loading all of those elements at once. And so we, of course, had to do you know, sort of the basic UI stuff like pagination and decrease the size of requests and you know all, all of that stuff. And then I think there was the next phase, which was like we started outgrowing the biggest databases you could get. We're happy to hit the upgrade button and um, kick the can down the road as much as we could. But we started realizing, you know what, we have too big a data explosion problem, um, you know, with all the customers that we're adding, growing at a super fast rate to keep everyone on the same database. So we started having the, the same debate that a lot of people have. Do we you know, start partitioning and sharding stuff? Um, you know, do we uh, try to move to a different you know, model? Um, are we, you know, had to do a bunch of database investigation at a time when you're already feeling a ton of pressure just to get stuff done. And we ultimately wound up migrating from you know, Heroku to AWS, as uh, you know, just about everyone um, did. When I remember chatting with CTOs in 2015, and one of their top priorities was um, you know, move off of Heroku, which was actually an amazing product that I think had um, incredible innovations, but had some limitations around compliance and, and some other things, which I think they've since resolved. Certainly around cost, too. <laughs> yeah, our database was... You know, maybe six times expensive as it would have been on AWS, and those dollars were adding up. Um, yeah, so we, we migrated over to AWS and we chose a horizontal scaling model. And so in SaaS, you often have an organization or, or a company as um, you know, sort of the perfect shard key. They don't need to know about other organizations' data. Um, they really only need to know about their own. And so we had this insight. A lot of SaaS companies end up um, sort of putting different clusters of customers on different databases, which has you know, some other nice benefits aside from your database not getting too huge. You also get isolation. You can roll through upgrades without taking everyone down. Um, you know, things, things like that. So we've moved to a horizontal scaling model and that really um, addressed some of the core issues. And now we're you know, pretty good sized company and I, I really have not heard a peep from anyone on my team um, any concern about whether we could you know, triple, quadruple, um, you know, keep adding customers with the model that we have. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? It has to be like having having such a great team of you know good people. I know that's probably like the most common answer that you get to that question. I you know, wish I could say it was some uh, cool little bit of code, and, and uh, there are certain bits that I I was proud of, um, although a lot of it was uh, a bit rushed. It's really like a bunch of people who really want to stay and engage and, and work there. And um, when I look back at the first five years of Greenhouse, um, we kind of had an amazing stat, which you know, has has since been broken. Um, you know, a few years down the road. But in the first five years, we scaled up the team to, I think it was about 60 people on the engineering team, and no one had left by choice in five years. To me, that meant that we were scratching a bunch of core itches that people really had. And I remember when I was thinking about recruiting people and bringing them in, I asked them a bunch of questions about what they wanted out of their next role that they weren't getting, you know, what, what problems they were kind of trying to solve by, by moving from one place to another. And it almost always came down to four things in my mind. One of them was they didn't feel like they were being treated fairly in some way or another. 
They either didn't feel like they were being paid fairly or recognized sufficiently for the work that they were doing or um, you know, something along those lines. Or their ideas were you know, deprioritized because you know, somebody else had more power. Um, they didn't feel like they had fair treatment. They didn't feel like they were respected. That was that was the, the next one. Like they didn't like the culture they were a part of. They felt it was toxic. They were you know, working with people that didn't treat them well and they didn't feel like they could be the best version of themselves. Another one was, you know, growth. That's obviously a super common one. It's like, you know, I don't feel like I can grow in my career. Sometimes that's just, you know, you've run into a, a real scaling limit of, um, you know, the next job's not available. I'd have to wait for my boss to die. But other times it's, you know, that they're not learning anything new. They've been solving the same problems for a long time. And then the last one is really like the nail in the coffin, which is that they didn't feel sufficiently empowered to change any of those things in their environment. Because people don't really want to go through interview processes. They don't want to switch companies most of the time. It's kind of a painful thing to do. And so there must be a pain that's greater than that for them to consider doing it in the first place. If people feel empowered to make a change and make their environment better, that's the lower effort thing to do. And they'll probably do that a lot of the time. So it's really that whole list of things conspiring you know, to, to drive them out the door. Fairness, respect, growth, and uh, you know, the inability to change things. I think we embodied a lot of those things. Um, you know, we tried to empower people to make change in their environment when they saw something that wasn't working well. They were empowered and encouraged to do whatever it took to, to make that part better, not just you know, sort of point fingers at the managers and, and you know, be angry something wasn't getting done. We really enlisted everybody on the team to make things better. It was a culture, uh, and, and still is, a, a culture of respect, and you know, people communicate with each other respectfully. People feel fairly treated. And then we have, you know, good, uh, you know, not just growth plans, but managers who are really interested in developing the people on their teams and you know, providing um, the sometimes tough feedback that's required in order for somebody to, to make the paradigm shift and grow. And so we're trying to provide a lot of the things that I think cause people to, to leave companies in the, uh, you know, when, they, when they don't get it. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. So everybody's seen that episode of Silicon Valley, uh, where, where somebody leaves the Trace Commons bottle on a keyboard and it takes down their, their whole site. We figured our backend admin system that you had to log into was uh, a relatively easy place to avoid putting in things like, uh, you know, rate limiting. <laughs> so the main search box um, that existed inside of our backend system, which of course was, you know, sort of querying the database, this was like you know, six or seven years ago. I was you know, at the office on like a Friday night and a bunch of us were hanging out and um, you know, we were there till like you know, 7.15, 7.30. And all of a sudden, one of the engineers walks over to me and is like, the site's down and we're getting all of these requests. I think we're being hacked. I'm like, oh my God. So I like, you know, run over to um, my laptop and um, you know, start tailing logs and trying to figure out what's going on. I see you know, all, of these, uh, you know, all of these requests coming through and they look kind of crazy and it looks mostly like you know, these sort of blank search result requests. Uh, and, and so I finally find the IP address and trace the IP and try to you know, figure out where it's coming from. And you have that moment where you're like, it's coming from inside the house. It's coming from our office. Oh my God. And so you, you know, immediately jump to the wrong conclusion that there's like, you know, some black ops agent trying to hack your site, like literally you know, hiding in a closet somewhere and you have to go, you know, smoke them out. Um, but uh, I then, you know, then somebody made that joke about, um, you know, about Silicon Valley and they were like, oh, somebody probably just left a bottle of trace commas on, you know, on the, 
on the keyboard and I was like, oh God, I think that's exactly what's happening. And so I went and <laughs> chatted with one of the product managers who was across the way and I was like, can you go search the office and see if anybody might have, you know, might be leaning on a keyboard or something like that. And he runs downstairs to um, the floor below and finds that our head of customer success, who is going to have to explain all of this stuff to customers later for, you know, because the, the site was taken down, had left a heavy pair of headphones on the return key inside of that search box, which had no rate limiting and it had taken down the site. So the mistake was no really rate limiting in the back end. <laughs> and the consequence was a uh, half hour of, of you know, downtime, even after I rebooted the servers, they kept getting taken down by this, um, you know, by this denial of service attack executed by headphones inside of our office. That is the best mistake story I've had on the show so far. I, I love it. It's fantastic. The headphones that took them down. Yep. So rate limit people, even if you think no one can take you down that way. So what does the future look like for the product and for your team? Well, for the team, we're, we're actually growing a ton. Um, so this was a huge growth year for Greenhouse. It actually was our... You know, I would argue our best year ever, blew past 100 million um, over the summer of ARR and are, are you know, growing really quickly. We're gonna be adding, I think I'm adding 55 people. Um, you know, I think that's what the, the headcount plan says for this year. You know, I think the, the biggest change this year versus previous growth years is that um, there's probably gonna be quite a bit more distributed hiring happening. You know, we, we are all kind of distributed as a result of uh, the, you know, the, the pandemic and 25% of my team was distributed even pre-pandemic. That's gonna be interesting. You know, we, we're onboarding a lot of people um, and you know, trying to build you know, relationships and, and connection to the culture. And you know, it's sort of easy to do on, on some level when you get to see everyone face-to-face and they're lovely people. Um, you know, when you're all sitting on a computer, it, it's, it's certainly a bit more challenging. So I think we're gonna be focused on trying to figure out ways to um, create good interpersonal connection in a world that's a little bit less accommodating. For, for the company, I think we're just going to solve more and more of our customers' problems. You know, recruiting is kind of a, a big thing. Like, what do you ultimately want? I mean, sort of like fantasy. The fantasy is you say what's important for the job and the person shows up like two days later. Imagine everything that's required in order to get to that point, because that's certainly not how hiring works today. And that's basically our roadmap. Well, let's switch to you specifically. Who influences the way that you work? You know, a CTO, an architect, really any person that you look up to and why. There's some really important people in my life who've you know, taught me key lessons. I think one of the, the most important ones is actually my first manager when I moved to New York. Um, and I can give you the, the sort of anecdote that was that turned into a heavy hitting moment for me. I had been working at this small startup, which had been uh, you know, acquired by, by LendingTree, building personal financial management software. And uh, he took me to breakfast one morning. You know, I thought I was killing it. I thought I was doing a great job. I was getting all of the work assigned to be done by like you know, Wednesday morning. And you know, then I was, I'd come up with a bunch of ideas for things that I thought could be um, improvements and I would you know, assign myself the work and get it done. He sat me down and told me, he was like, you know, you're screwing up. Like, you know, you're part of a team. And what's really needed from you is, is if you finish your work early, to ask what you can pick up from other people and, you know, help, help take load off of their plate. And he let me know, he's like, you know, they're resentful of you. Even though you're getting all this work done, you're not working as part of a team in, in, you know, in the right way. And 
you know, that, that landed heavy because, of course, you know, anytime somebody gives you feedback that, you know, attacks the ego uh, a little bit, I think, you know, people have, have a little bit of a defensive reaction. But I realized he was right. And maybe the more important thing that I realized even than that, which, you know, of course, important lesson, like teamwork is important, was how critical to my development it was for him to have that confrontation with me. You know, for, for him to actually decide, I would rather have a conflict this morning than just to have a, a sort of cheery interaction with this person because, um, you know, it, it, and he was actually on his way out the door. I think he might have left a few weeks later. So he was under no real obligation to do that. Um, but I think it was a gift to, to, you know, tell me I was screwing up and, and, you know, how I could make it better. So that's something I've tried to pay forward um, to other people. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, uh, which was awesome. Um, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking maybe a different approach? A bunch of data modeling decisions, probably. Um, I think we, we got a lot of the data model right. But yeah, we produced a huge number of different, um, different models. And there were certain things that just added a ton of complexity to how we had to build the software, where if I'd made a more careful decision earlier on, I would have avoided a bunch of that. And so I actually did a mini research project a few years ago, um, which I had sort of codenamed Cockroach Code, um, which was asking the question, like, what has survived? There have been dozens and dozens of engineers. You know, they've changed most stuff. What has actually survived? And it was, it was pretty clear that it was a combination of things that people didn't understand because of lack of clarity, you know, some way or another, or lack of documentation. You know, that was that was one issue. Another one was, you know, the data, the, the interface has escaped into the wild. So there's not too much we can do. An example of that was our uh, job board system. I wrote like the little JavaScript injector that puts the career page into everyone's, uh, you know, into everyone's website so you can apply for a job on, on Greenhouse. That was an escaped interface. So there was only so much that you could really change that. And the last one was really um, data model stuff um, because there was relatively tight entanglement between the data model and how you named things and how you named things inside of the code. And so once there was a critical mass of code that knew about that thing and uh, wasn't well enough encapsulated, it became really, really hard to change. And so um, you know, a tiny example is how we manage the differences between prospects and candidates. We created two different types of models. A lot of stuff overlapped. They were kind of the same thing with a couple of differences. Um, and I wish I had created that as, as you know, something that was a little bit more polymorphic and, and not two separate things that needed to be recombined and interleaved in you know, a million different places. Well, last question, Mike. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? I probably mind my own business and stare at the <laughs> seat in front of me until the flight is over, <laughs> um, to be <laughs> perfectly honest. But I think I'm going to give the uh, the opposite of what, what a lot of people say, which is if it's a bad idea, don't keep going. <laughs> try, to, try to figure out whether it's a good idea or a bad idea by, by hearing real problems from the market. You're not building a painkiller, and you're you're building a vitamin, um, and you know you figure that out. That's probably the time to stop. You don't just keep going for another year. You don't try to raise more money. Um, you realize I'm on the wrong track, and my time is precious. And um, you know you, you switch tracks. 
So that's that's maybe one is, is make sure to switch tracks on, on time at the right moment. And then if you do know you have the right idea, it's really a painkiller. It's actually solving a problem for people. If people want it. Then of course, you know, like do whatever it takes to, to make sure that you win. And so um, I don't think it's a forever thing, but there are probably a few years at the beginning of a startup where work-life balance is not gonna be a realistic priority. When you have uh, have enough space in your life to be able to make something your your sort of core focus and, and you know, just make sure that you you win at that thing, totally commit yourself to it, and uh, and it will eventually get a little bit lighter if you succeed and the company scales because you won't be doing every job forever. The objective of your uh, you as a leader, if the company is doing well, is to replace everything that you're doing um, with either a process or a position, um, you know, for somebody else to occupy. You keep doing that on repeat, and you can get to a pretty big scale, um, leveraging a team of awesome people to um, to make the rest of it a reality and still sleep at night. That's great advice. Well, Mike, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for telling the creation story of Greenhouse. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.